back to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and presented by Major Domo Media. This is part two of my conversation with my friend, comedian, actor, Nick Kroll. If you missed part one, please go back and listen. In this episode, we get a little bit more philosophical, talking about work-life balance and how to set up other people for success. So without further ado, here's Nick Kroll, part two. So what else you got? You got Big Mouth coming out, Big which, Mouth by season. the way, if you haven't seen, mm-hmm. it is so fucking mental. <laughs> right? Is. Like, yeah. I told you this. Grace, my wife, she finished it in like a night. Uh, and then I watched it. Uh-huh. She watched it without me. I was like, I had to question her sanity. <laughs> she was like, this is amazing. It's so hilarious. And yes, it is incredibly funny. You should watch it. But it's like, it is so disturbing sometimes. You're like, in the best possible sense, like, the motherfucker is having sex with the pillow, and yes. the pillow is cheating on him. Yes, 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 You're yes. You're like, what the fuck? And the pillow got pregnant. Yeah, yeah. It's so dark. <laughs> well, it's, No, it, not dark. It's just, like, how did it come out of your head? Um, so I finished the league. I finished Kroll show. And I was like, I need to clear the deck. I need to like start again. I need I need a refresh on my brain here. And so out of that came the stage show of Oh Hello with John Mulaney. And then also my partners, my current partners on Big Mouth, Andrew Goldberg, who I've known since I was six years old, and Mark Levin and Jen Flackett, who I are old friends of Andrew's and who I'd spent a little bit of time with, who were a writer-director team. They came to me with the idea of an animated show based on me and Andrew in seventh grade. One boy who is me, a very late, late bloomer. I didn't get pubic hair until I got to high school was not even five feet tall. And Andrew, who was ravaged by puberty, like had a full beard that his parents then, his father made his mom wax his mustache when we were in like sixth or seventh grade. So for years, he could grow a full beard (laughs) and nothing above his lip because his mom had waxed his lip. And like, so there was a little stash that he couldn't grow straight in the middle that we called his reverse Hitler. (laughs) So we thought that seemed like an idea of like, what was it, what's it like for two boys to be best friends who have so much in common, who are physically in such different places? So they were like, you know, kids are going through puberty. They have like a kind of like a hormone monster. And then they were like, and there yes. is a hormone monster. Well, right. The they show. were like, oh, that's what it should be. We should have a hormone monster. And then Andrew called me and was like, we were thinking about like a hormone monster for Andrew. And then I immediately was like, touch yourself, Andrew. <laughs> and they were like, yes, that's the voice. And then we just built it from there. So we're going into season two now. So it's really a show about these boys, but now it's it has grown out to this group of friends, including a girl, Jessie, who's going through puberty and getting her period for the first time and discovering her hormone monstrous that Maya Rudolph voices and, and what it's like for a girl to be horny. We've seen a lot of boys being horny, but like, what's it like that girls also get horny? And Jay, Jason Manzuka's voices, who starts to fuck his pillow, which is based on a friend of Andrew and I's in middle school who <laughs> fucked his pillow all the time. Uh <laughs> But then you, you know, because it's animated, you can build that out and get to the emotional honesty of why is this boy fucking this pill? Yes, he needs to release, but also this boy is trying to create relationships, to create something that is more than just this physical activity. He's he's trying to create emotional realities for himself. And that's why I mean, like, as like crazy when I meant mental, it's like, because it's animation, because you're almost doing these like so off the wall versions of real life shit you're able to like 
almost narrow into the actual like core yes. of what is actually going through kids' minds yes. at that time. That is the goal. Like the scene when they're trying to make out in the in the closet. Yes. The fucking paranoia and the anxiety. Yes. It's yes. like I feel like you can really watch that and be like, that is actually more seventh grade than yes. a real TV show. And that's what's so crazy to me is that it's a fucking insane animated show as well. Yes. I think we, because it's animated, you can weirdly talk about things that you can't if it were live action. One, you could never show two kids fully dry humping in seventh grade live action. But you can do it in animation and you can get into what's going on in those kids' heads. So this season that premieres this fall the big new character that comes in, you know, ever all these season one, we establish hormone monsters and all this stuff. Season two, the big character that we're bringing in is a shame wizard. So David Thewlis, who's an incredible actor who, I don't know if you saw Fargo season three, he's the bad guy in Fargo season three. He's the bad guy in Wonder Woman. I mean, he's been in every tons of stuff. I mean, so that, he's, a, he's one usually of, a bad guy. He's, but yeah, but he's also a good guy in Harry Potter. He's one of the professors in Harry Potter and crazy talented British actor. We were watching Fargo season three when we were, were writing it. And I was like, whoa, this guy. And we were like, he should be the shame wizard which is another aspect to what is going on when you're going through puberty and you're jerking off or you're looking at your friend's sister, or you're doing whatever, and this shame wizard comes and, and becomes this very powerful haunting force in your life. So, again, we're trying to be the I funniest. I thought that was Judaism. <laughs> well, there's a difference in, in <laughs> it is. But we were also reading simultaneously. There's a woman, Brene Brown, who's a psychologist, therapist, who did a bunch of TED Talks, and we— we listen to her TED talk about shame and the difference between shame and guilt. So what she says is that guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. Mm. So there's an element to shame that is actually, I think, more Catholic than Jewish. Mm. And it was perfect that you merged that at Georgetown. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Jesuit. Yes. And Jew. Well, and then that was the funny thing is like me and Mulaney, <laughs> me and Mulaney, who I, you know, is like a good Catholic boy from Chicago. We have weirdly come to together in this thing of Catholicism and Judaism have various things in common and ending up with a lot of people in comedy from those two spaces. And I think it is there's guilt and shame in all of it and neuroses. And, and I think you could transfer to varying versions of anxiety, neuroses, and also whatever fuels you to then figure out how to deal with those feelings. And the show is really an exploration of these crazy feelings and emotions that you have at 13 and how do you process them and how do they lead to who you become many, many years later? What sticks around? What do you overcome? So I don't want to take all your time, but I wanted to tie in something to the show and to your life. One of my favorite scenes in Big Mouth was the bar mitzvah scene. Yeah. You did a book right out of college almost called Disco Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, Bar Mitzvah Disco. Bar, bar Mitzvah. I always yeah. fuck that up. You like saying it, Disco Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, I always I think find. it's... Bar Mitzvah Disco. Yeah. It's Bar Mitzvah Disco. Yeah. With my friends now, our friends, like their kids are getting to that age. Yeah. And I talk to Bill Simmons a lot and his daughter seems to go to yeah. a Bar Mitzvah like every other week. Yeah. It's dawned on me. There's a lot of people that have never been to a Bar Mitzvah. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> explain. Explain all of this. Well, it's like... Or bat mitzvah. It's like, yeah, bar and bat mitzvah. So, you know, you're in your Jewish, you're 13, and it was a ritualized idea of you are now an adult member of the community. It was a rite of passage, I think. And I think most religions have some version of it, whether it's communion or 
In Latin world, a quinceañera at 15, it's a little different, but it's a similar thing of like, you've some version of you've hit puberty, you are now taking on more responsibilities within your community, you're, you're becoming a man, you're becoming a woman. However, it also is, you are very much, especially now that kids can stay kids a lot longer, you're a child. And you're all of a sudden thrust with these responsibilities of adulthood or the trappings of adulthood for a day. Like, I think Bar Mitzvah Disco, one of our taglines, like, today I am a man, tomorrow I go back to the seventh grade. That might have been like a fortune cookie that we ripped off. But <laughs> but regardless, I mean, look, that was the first thing I did. I did with my brother-in-law, Roger Bennett, who has a podcast and show called Men in Blazers now about the world of uh, Premier League soccer and our jewel shell, we we did this book and it was, it's crazy that whatever now, probably almost 15 years later when we probably started it, I probably started it right around when we met. It was the first tangible thing that I did. Why did you have to do this book? I think Roger came to me with the idea. He was like, what about this thing about like bar mitzvahs, a book about bar mitzvahs? And it, it just made sense. It just felt like, you know, it was a nostalgic look back. And also, it was this incredibly interesting time in life, which now, many, many years later, I'm still kind of exploring because I think there's something about that age when you're 13, 14, 15, where you are figuring out, you are forming the beginnings of a, your own individual personality and, and humanness. And the things that happen to you at that age, both good and bad, largely bad, become a huge foundation for the person you're going to become. So like, you know, I'm in therapy talking about things that happened to me when I was 13 years old and they are affecting very much the decisions and actions of who I am now. And I feel very lucky that I then take the things that I'm thinking about and talking about in therapy and then go to my writer's room on Big Mouth and explore what it is that happened to me. What's the funniest way to handle that? What are the things that happened to me then that are still the patterns that I'm living out now two-thirds of my life later? And the bar mitzvah is sort of a celebration, but is it serious too for the person that's going through it? You got to memorize a bunch of shit. Yeah, and I now have all my nieces and nephews going through that as well. And it's like, it's a real performance. It's a big, and I remember it being one of my first big performances. Like you read from the Torah, uh, you give a speech about, you know, oftentimes about what it was happening in the Torah portion that week, you know, so like whatever, Moses, you know, taking the the Ten Commandments. And you then try to figure out a way to be like, when Moses came down and everybody was celebrating the golden calf instead of him, that he got angry and threw down the Ten Commandments and had to go back up. That's like what's happening now in our political system that, you know, Bernie Sanders is trying to say that we need to change the system and then he gets too angry or that's like how the volunteer work that, you know, and like you're, you're making bullshit equations, right. but you're also theoretically trying to, how does something that happened 2000 years ago apply to me now? And then you give a speech at your party. I mean, it depends on who you are, what's going on, your social situation, but you then have a party that night where all of a sudden you are the king of the fucking universe and some kids want to be the king. And some kids want to recede and are not comfortable in that spotlight. I was someone who always wanted the spotlight, but did not have fun at my actual bar mitzvah because I felt like I was being celebrated solely because it was my day to be celebrated, not because I had earned it, if that makes sense. Like, I love performing when I'm supposed to be performing. But if I'm not supposed to be performing, I'm not like 
trying to be in the center of— You want a separation of church and state. Correct. Sort of. And I felt like my bar mitzvah did not feel like a separation of it. Because I've only been to one bar mitzvah in my life. Really? So the reason I was always so curious to you and talking about bar mitzvahs is now I have a lot of friends that are Jewish, mm -hmm. but like it's also done to me like many people have never been to a bar or bat mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And it's a very strange thing for people to understand. Like yes. they might have seen it. Like I remember talking to people when uh, there was a scene in uh, Entourage, right? Like right. you see it in movies, but right. people think it's just a party. It is a party, but there's incredibly complex social things yeah. going on in that thing. Oh, for sure. And I think it like I look back now being like, what I remember giving my speech, you know, at the synagogue during the day, being like, here's what I was. And I got to a cousin of mine was a hemophiliac and got a bad blood transfusion in the 80s and has been living with HIV for now over 30 some odd years. Jesus fuck. He's still alive, has been married, and has a daughter and is an amazing man. When I was 13, he was probably had been diagnosed and was like in his, you know, maybe 20, 21 years old. And I remember talking about him in my speech of being like, this to me is bravery. Like, this is a guy who was faced with this thing and is dealing with it. And I was reading my speech and, like, realized I had left the final page of my speech in my room or somewhere. <laughs> so I'm going from page four of my speech to five. And I'm like, and my cousin Kevin, no speech. <laughs> and I'm like, uh. And I think people thought I was getting emotional. But really, I was like, Fuck, I don't have my speech. This is your first stand-up. It's my first, like, I gotta I gotta improvise. I gotta try to remember the general gist of what I was getting at or just wing it and pretend like I'm crying. No. And by the way, I mean it's amazing. That's like, you know, more than 25 years ago. Kevin is still alive, going strong, and has led a full, amazing life. It's amazing to me that so much of the shit that we're still processing happened when we were 10 to 15, yeah. 16 years right? old. Right. I mean, you think it's still the same for kids today? Oh, yeah. I think so. I don't think that goes away. I mean, I think kids' neural pathways are changing because of how they're interacting with the world through their phones and stuff that we didn't have to deal with. And I think that's like leaving very weird, interesting, new like rivets in their brain. But I still think I worry that how they are learning to deal with conflict and social interaction is happening so much through their phones and screens in a way that we had to deal with things face-to-face, -face, both the real humiliation of things and also the overcoming of those those humiliations and dealing with conflict that they don't have. They're not necessarily given those exact tools, but they're still dealing with those tools. And the humiliation that you felt like getting made fun of at the playground is now happening in a digital space and has a similar, if not more profound effect on you. It's dawned on me too that I'm talking to someone that is of my same generation, right? Yeah. I don't think I hear this enough, but we talk about it occasionally with friends. How, I don't even know, what do we call our generation? We're not Gen X. Yeah. We're not millennial. No. I, I think about this all the time. W what the fuck? Not that we need a thing, but we're so straddling in between. Like, I didn't get an email address till 1999. Yes, you know? correct. There were cell phones, but no one really had them. Yep. If you wanted to go to a party in high school, it's like, meet at the hill. Yeah. <laughs> next to the wood, chop down tree. Yeah. And if the cops come, we'll go to this place. Yeah. Like, how the fuck did we even do anything? Well, we were the last, like, because, you know, in my writer's room on Big Mouth, we ha I have kids in there who are 23 years old, who have literally their entire lives— since they could talk, had 
computers, the internet. I didn't get a cell phone until I graduated college and drove across around the country in 2001. I had an email address in college that I sort of used, but we really grew up very much formatively without any of that stuff. And our adult lives have been given the internet and all that stuff. But the kids now, anyone younger than us, at the very least had like AOL chat or AIM, you know, from like middle school on where they were like, oh, I was chatting with people online when I was in middle school, you know, we didn't have that. And I think we are caught between even like my brother, who's like seven years older. He's than reality me. bites, Ethan Hawke. Yes, exactly. Uh, Winona Ryder generation. Exactly. We are not like. We're not that. And we're not millennials. We're daisy confused <laughs> if it came out in 1995. Yes, yes exactly. But like that's like really the only movie that sort of. Which is a movie about the. 70s you know what i mean it's so fucking weird yeah we don't have that because we're not gen x no they're fucking way older than us yeah we're old they're fucking way older. and then but what's interesting now is like people call millennials but the 23 year old in my writer's room is not a millennial no, he's, he's like, post what? i don't know what it is hey, like, isaac what are, what are you gen z gen z gen z yeah, yeah i don't give a shit yeah <laughs> like i don't know and we're not gen x there's is there a term for us? What is our term? Other than we're fucking old now. Yeah. Can I just tell you now, when you turn 40, really yeah. milk your fucking 30s. Because when you tell someone you're 30, there's even if you're like 39, you can still tell them you're th- in your 30s. And they'll still say, you're young. Like, I know. There's still that thought that you're young. No, 40 no longer. You could look 22, but once you say you're 40, it doesn't matter. You're fucking old. I know. That is how I've, I, I mean, I just turned 40. Yeah. And I feel that. Mazel tov. Thank you. I can't wait to Come see. that. <laughs> I can't wait to see my mid. Maybe I'm in my midlife crisis right fucking Ugh, now. I feel like we are both. I don't know. It's old, man. It's just weird because I want to know what the fuck's happening. When but I, I also think, I also think with what we do and how we've done it, that we are extending every version of our life so that like, because I was just thinking about this. I was like, you know, I don't have a, I'm not married. I don't have kids. Uh, I've done all this stuff in my career. There's more I want to do, but I'm pleased with it. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just like, instead of having my like 70 to 90, let's say I make it to 90. Then instead of 70 to 90 being like, all right, time to fucking, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And now I'm just going to like fade away that my 70 to 90 will be more active. (laughs) That I'm just spreading out like there are 10 things you're supposed to do in your life from, you know, zero to 90. Instead of doing like nine of them, I'm going to take all 90 years to do the 10 things I'm supposed to do in life. What? Fuck, man. Like, it's just, there's so much to say. Like, this is what we talk about a lot. Yes. We talk about this shit. What you're hearing on the podcast, this is just like Cole and I shooting the shit. (laughs) You can imagine how exciting it is. (laughs) But like. Can I ask you a question? Okay. So you are doing podcasts. You're, you're, you're continuing to open restaurants. Do you want to continue to open restaurants? I was thinking about this last night. I was at Major Domo. Yeah. I had dinner for the first time. I was at Major Domo twice this week. Go yeah, ahead. You were. Yeah. And it was the first time and like it started off great and then all of a sudden there were like things that were not right. right. And I was trying so hard not to fucking get angry and I promised myself I was going to be calm and talk about it thoughtfully the next day. Uh-huh. But like a dish came out and it was just not right and I immediately went to the kitchen. I didn't yell. I was just like, this is fucking wrong. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. And it dawned on me that like I was the reason why it was fucked up. Why? Because like I didn't set it up right. Right. Ultimately, I've learned that- Your systems. The shit that goes wrong is always my fault at the end of the day. If you really do like Uh six degrees of separation, 
Because you micromanage a process and then it becomes, unless you are there in the middle of it, then it can't be done properly yeah. without you or something like and that. The restaurant thing for me is this Sisyphean act sure. that I have to do it even though I fucking hate doing it uh-huh. <laughs> um, because it's so painful. And it's almost like diversifying because like we have all these restaurants and you're trying to see which one is working really well. Yeah. And it just like constantly tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. And like last night, I had a hard time going to sleep because I was like, oh my God, like what am I doing? We yeah. just won like Eater. Yes, congratulations. And like last night I was like, oh, this is all sure. the foundation's ruined. This is going to go to shit tomorrow. It's all going to end. Like, <laughs> fuck, we got to get this right. I sent a litany of emails this morning to work because like now I'm on LA. I wake up at New York time at like 5 a.m. and yeah. I have all these fucking things that I do. And I was completely having not an existential crisis, but I was like, I have to get this better. I have to get sure. this right. And that's why I keep on doing it. Not out of joy, out of a, basically an itch I have to scratch. Can you, what do you find joy in? It's funny. This is exactly like talking to my therapist or my executive coach or something mm-hmm. like that. It's, I genuinely find joy in getting other people to be successful, to getting people to be in their creative best, to yeah. getting people to be at a place where they're happy. Yeah. And it's taken me really a long time. I mean, since I was 35, understanding this point that I can't do that unless I know fucking what happiness is. Yes. And as you know, no one would ever consider myself as the paradigm of fucking happiness to <laughs> no. go lucky. No. So that's really been a struggle of fighting who I am as a default setting and trying to be patient and trying to tap into a different energy source yeah. for myself. When I say energy, not like new age bullshit, no, no, but no. like like rage and anger yeah. and like that does that need to like just smash it to get there. Yeah. While effective is not really effective for the grand scope of what the shit I want to do and really help other people out. So that's what I have to think about as we grow was and how we are trying to be successful across the board with restaurants is delegating. I almost look at it as trying to be a better parent. Yeah. And each restaurant is like, well, it's another, another kid, another, another yeah, shot. How do I empower my kid to go do the thing that they want to do? And I'm, com- I'm not comfortable, but I am resigned to the fact that I'll never be right. If you're a perfectionist. Yeah, but I don't see myself as a perfectionist, but I fucking am. Yes. So like, I want to do that and I want to continue doing that because we're so invested. But at the same time, there's all this other stuff and I've been cooking for 20, I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. And if I decide I want to do something else- if I wanted a new job, I can't. Right. Although you're doing a podcast right <laughs> I'm now. I'm doing a podcast right now. And I'm sure people are listening to this being like, you should get back in the fucking kitchen. <laughs> Fuck this guy. Mm-hmm. And they talk to me the way I talk to a, a running back that fumbles the football. Right. Like, that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, yeah. dude. Like, chill out. Yeah. We are working on this. And like, I want to explore some new things and hopefully get in line with the actual business. That's my goal is to really get personal and professional, like merge into one. It already is. Mm -hmm. And some way, the only way for me to get that happiness is to actually work on myself and have a family and to not always work because I always work. I work more now than I think I ever have, which is a ridiculous statement. But in terms of hours allotted, like I don't really have that much time. No. So now I'm trying to figure out how I can not work as much by working more. Right. Well, it's working more efficiently and working more. And I don't even mean like the time you have at the restaurant, but like in your case being like, oh, me raging out in my kitchen while I will eventually get what I want. Is this not a good use of my time or energy if there's a way that I can go in and calmly say you're doing this dish wrong? 
Right. And this is something, again, I've worked so many years at, and this might sound so trivial to someone listening. I've understood that as like a thesis for me is like, I, I genuinely like being of service to others. And I think the Jesuits did a really fucking yes. good job at brainwashing that fucking enemy. But I was able to convince myself that my actions were all in the service of others. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when in reality, most of it was just to service me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, again, what I learned is I have a remarkability to convince myself of anything. So uh-huh. do a lot of people. Uh-huh. And it's just trying to be a little bit more like pragmatic about things moving forward. And it sounds crazy because I'm I'm actually having anxiety just talking to you about this. I'm like, fuck, I got to like do less. Right. I got to like figure out how to like. But you it's know. also, I don't know, man. I mean, last night I was at work and Grace was like, please be home by 1030. I'm like, fuck. Yeah. I got to get home. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. fuck. <laughs> so it's like now more stressful to try to carve out personal life. Yes. Well, if you don't give yourself that, then you you can do keep working, do whatever you want. But then simultaneously, you are missing out on the other elements that ultimately allow you to be a more creative, a potently creative force. And that's I think what everyone's brain, telling me right now. Right. You've told me this. Yeah. Mutual friends have told me this. Like, Dave, you need to drop all the shit. I know. But for all those people that are listening, that are being told by other people to do something, and you know, it's not easy to just do it overnight. It takes time. Well, but it's also like, how are you, like your entire existence has been built on fucking pushing yourself, being, uh, creating, and and constantly following through and, and perfecting the things that you've been rewarded over and over for that behavior. So then to be told that you have to modify that behavior feels like it is a break of like what your basic DNA is. You are pretty good at carving out time for yourself. Yeah, you know bit. what I mean? Like, yeah. I've always admired that. You're like, mm-hmm. that's it. I'm going to like focus on me now. A little bit, but yes. But you also overwork yourself. Yes. Yeah. And like, I was talking to Isaac, the producer, and last night we had dinner and I was giving him shit. I will constantly give him shit. Yeah. <laughs> because he's like, oh, I work so much and it's yeah. so fucking hard and blah, blah, blah. Like, but my question that to him is, is like that I will admit now is what if he's right? What if... Our method is just stupid, mm-hmm. which I don't disagree with. Sure. All I know is that, like, it might be better than, like, being scared and being a wallflower I, and observing. Yes. You can't speak to anyone but your own personal experience. And there's a world where I have friends who, in my space and in other spaces, like the wonderful website MySpace, that we're happy to be like, no, I'm going to, like, I'm going to not go do comedy this week or I'm not going to push this. I'm going to go, like, marry that woman and I'm going to go have those kids, but I'm going to go live, like, a lovely life. Right. And it's like, for that person, that is the right play. But it's also maybe more enlightened and smart. And this may sound insane. For instance, the really most intelligent people that go on, like, Jeopardy or those quiz shows, Mm -hmm. like the smartest motherfuckers in the world, they never go all in to get the million-dollar question. Uh-huh. They're calculating, I have, what, $70,000. I know that the next question will be infinitely more difficult and unlikely that I'll be able to answer. So, you know what, Alex, I'm not going to go for the big big prize. Right. I'm going to, like, cash out now. Yes. That's what I think a lot of the millennials have, like, figured out from watching dummies like us uh-huh. to be like— Wait, like you guys are so stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you guys, you guys are literally rolling the fucking stone up the fucking hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for what? There's no payoff. There's no return really on that investment. You just need to push it up like halfway up the fucking hill. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm like now understanding. Like maybe they're fucking right, but I refuse to let them know. I'm too fucking stubborn to give them the fucking <laughs> <laughs> the credit. Yeah, that they may have like figured out a way. Yeah. 
I totally hear you. I just like, I don't think either of us function that way. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? No. And God bless him. I mean, it's like maybe one day, but I'm also like, no, I want to go fucking create yeah. and work my ass off. And then I'm going to Burning Man. Oh, no. You told me that. I know. I can't. We, I'll come back. Know, I'll tell we you have over. to have another podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. when you come back from Burning Man. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. Like, and by the way, I'm not a Burning Man guy, but no, I'm not. like, but you're I'm, not. but I, but that's what I mean by like, I don't know, like I'm 40, like I have the resources and time. I'll just finish my show. I want to go to fucking Burning Man. Right. I want to have that experience. Even if I end up hating it, I want to have that life experience. You are literally listening to how Nick and I talk. <laughs> 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 this is what we do. <laughs> Shit you not. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge. I would know we're constantly in need of great people at our restaurants all the time. But there's one place I go and you can go to where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With the results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance, perfect for planners and procrastinators like me. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. You name it. It's so easy to use. Book hotels in 10 seconds in just three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program, where the more you book, the better the deals get. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now back to Nick Kroll, part two. So I went to Major Domo twice this past week, mm-hmm. and I, I had been early on for, you know, a couple various dinners and had great meals. But I'm curious what it was that you were frustrated with. I did not enjoy certain things, and I was sort of upset at not the mistakes that were made, but the fact that I think these kinds of mistakes were representative of the group think and yeah. the culture yeah. that is at Major Domo, if that makes any sense. So sure. I wrote an uh, email this morning. <laughs> what did I write? The biggest concern is the culture in the kitchen. Like how we log in recipes, how we standardize dishes, how we f- document all of this stuff, right? How we 
log in the evolution and changes because we want to give the cooks an opportunity to mm-hmm. have input. They're the ones making every day. If they think that we can make something better, sure. then we need to talk about it. But we also need to like make that a point to say like this happened in the history of this dish. Right, right, right. And it's very, I think, not bureaucratic, but can be laborious, laborious for someone, especially when you have all this other shit going on in the restaurant. And I was trying to say is like, how do we, we have these like systems and internet portals where you can do it, but no one's doing it. Right. Right. So like I saw a massive discrepancy in the chicken salt. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is we put our fries. So we make a chicken salt. Yeah. That, that's why we put on our, our French fries and a couple other dishes. And it's just like, Are they we the make a chicken rings? powder. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we make a chicken powder and all this other shit. And I tasted it on a French fry and it wasn't good. And mm-hmm. I was like, mm, I don't understand. Was it the fact that the French fry was not properly done? Cause it's a three day process. Uh-huh. So like when I'm going through this, it's like Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. I'm trying to figure out at what point this yes. got altered. Yes. And I found out that three different people had three different recipes when we already have a mother recipe of how right? they make their chicken salt. Yeah. And no one knew that we had a mother recipe for that specific thing. It was, huh. they thought it was too small to have it logged in. Uh huh. Someone put more white pepper in. Someone put, like, more salt in. Someone didn't put salt in. And this is the sort of, like, the anarchy that is really great and really bad because you don't want people to feel like they're working in North Korea, even though sometimes I wish that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Right? If I were casting it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Um, Yes, but to me, it's like the larger question there is like, you're like, how do I empower the people on the ground to have their input, to put their stamp on things, to let these things evolve while simultaneously maintaining? Yes, correct. I, I say this every fucking time when I talk about this. It's legitimately running any kind of great organization or I, because I live in a world of analogies, great sports team. Yeah. Right. Like you practice so you don't have to talk about it when you're in the game. Correct. And you're doing all these things to build intuition with another person so you can not worry about it, not spend mental energy when you're in the weeds or you're in the thick of things. And you can just like do it. Like, I guess very similar to improv. Sure. I would imagine like if you're thinking about it, you're You're going to fuck it up. Yeah. And that's what I don't want. I want them to get to a point where it is almost improv. And I I really want them to be sort of this uni mind. Yes. Where one action is met with another action from someone else. And it's all leading to making the best experience for the guests. Yes. And like, it's really hard to do that. Right. <laughs> In a fucking, re- I'm talking about a fucking restaurant. I just sounded like a crazy person. No, right it now. makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And so. that's, and by the way, like improv groups, for example, sometimes can be great off the top, but also take months and years to come together to have the beginning of what could be a group mind. And what's hard is we still have a core team of our staff, but some people have left for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So like you're constantly like plugging in, yeah. filling in these gaps. Yes. Yeah. And what else? What else? The vermicelli. Yeah. I tasted it last night. I fucked around with the dish. I'm turning it on a, <laughs> as a side of noodles, not in the pot with the broth. And I was mad that we never cooked it with butter before. It was just oil. And I was like, oh my God. what the? I was mad at myself right. and my group around me that we just were like why are so we dumb. Putting, just looking yeah. at this thing like, why isn't it better? Yeah. You know? Which one was that? The vermicelli? What is the, what else is in it? It's not the jalapeno dashi. You don't know if you had it. I don't I think I had it. it. I don't know. I haven't had um, it. It's, I have a light shellfish allergy. Yes. Is there shellfish in it? Yes, yes, it is, which is why you're definitely going to eat it next time. By the way, I still want to do that. <laughs> I'll you, have an EpiPen ready. Yeah. And 
this is going to be too esoteric, but I was mad at myself because I feel like instead of making a version of the dish, we're making versions of dishes that we've already like made in our heads. Yeah. Instead of like trying to make it simple about like where we're trying to get the inspiration from. Uh huh. And I don't know if that made any sense, but like sometimes you just got to go back to the beginning. Right. And to like get rid of all the versions that you've done. Right. Just to cut through all the shit. And right. I think like the, it's the idea of what, what Faulkner said is like uh, the idea of when, when you write something, you got to kill your darlings. Sure. Right. And you well, do that with jokes. All the time. And I think that's an imperative in a restaurant. Right. When you get so caught up on something that you think is so fucking cool. Yeah. Ultimately, like, it only makes let, you happy. Right. So no let me, one else. Okay. So for example- you have that macaroni with black truffle right now. Seems to be it's that what I had, I think. Anishi. At, yeah, Nishi, which is that like your cacio pepe, but with a, a non-Parmesan base. It's like a, not a soy base. What is it? Uh, it's a chickpea. Chickpea, right? So you've got this delicious sort of macaroni cacio pepe with black truffle, a dish that you've been figuring out for a long time. Where are you at with it? Are you happy with it or are you bored of it? Both. Yeah. All right. I'm mad that I didn't execute it the way I wanted to at Nishi. Uh -huh. I just ate at Nishi last week when uh -huh. I was in New York, and I was like, holy fuck, this is so good. Uh -huh. It's a completely different restaurant. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was mad at was me, because I'm the reason it got fucked up in terms of how I spoke about it and how I... Sp and I'm happy that I dropped it, and uh -huh. then I revisited it. So a lot of these ideas yes. aren't bad yes. in their own right, but they need time to sort of like flourish and yes. to incubate on their own. So that dish is great. What I want to do is figure out the next iteration of that right. dish. The problem is, there's a perfect example. Let's just say in two years, we've now done, we're probably at version, we're probably at version like 15 right now on this dish. Uh -huh. We'll probably be version 50 in two years. Uh -huh. Problem is version 51 is now a copy of the predecessors, yes. like the, the stuff that came previously. And ultimately that's bad. Sometimes uh -huh. at some point you're going to get a version that is like too convoluted because it's a, it's all based on all right. these other fucking things. Yes. And sometimes you need to go back to like zero. Well, it's like, I'll do stand up and improvise a joke on stage that will be electrically fun and fun for me to do with the audience. And I then will go back and try to like, all right, what did I say? I'll listen to the recording. of like, what did I say? How do I say it again? I'll do it again. It'll be okay. Cause there's still some discovery in it. By the sixth time I've said it, it's lost all of the discovery of it. And I'm now honing and fine tuning and trying to polish this specific moment in time. There's no joy in it. And I've also now am trying to add to it or I'm repeating beats that are not working because I've said them five times and it's how I remember them. And by the 10th time I've done it, I'm like, this joke is not working. But the problem is that's a perfect analogy too, I think. But what if you don't kill that joke and you keep on Correct. polishing it? eventually there's so much dissonance and aberrations that it becomes like this fucking deformity. Yes, correct. And that's where I feel like we are with this dish of the vermicelli. I was like fucking so pissed at yes. myself that yeah. I was like, fuck. Versus like the first time you cooked it in a test kitchen it or your perfect. restaurant was perfect. You're like, it's fucking delicious. And I'm like, why the fuck did I fuck up with this so much? Right. And I get it. <laughs> But so then it's a, like you, you're trying to get back to like, what is the core thing that's interesting about this thing? Can I simplify well, it or not? I got really mad at myself too, because I thought that was just a testament of hubris, right? Right. That like I can fucking, we can do this. And I was right. like, what am I trying to prove? Let's just make it fucking simple and delicious. Yes. But that hubris is, it's a weird double-edged sword because it's the hubris that gives you the confidence to be like, I know what the fuck I'm going to make. I just know I'm going to make it right. And then the hubris of, being like, and now I'm so good at this, I'm going to continue to make it better 
And then that's a slippery slope too. Yeah. But thinking about a dish like that is I think a great analogy for it, which is I'm going to go make this thing. I've now done this for long enough that I understand the process of making something very delicious and I have the resources to figure it out and make it work. But in doing so, sometimes in trying to perfect something, you take away what is the inherent like intrinsic joy joy out of it. And what I've also learned is if we're talking about like this vermicelli dish or any dish that you're constantly working on, you are in an echo chamber because you eventually forget how a customer needs to eat this. And you only are basing it on your own sort of knowledge of this dish. So I'm sure that could happen in jokes. Oh, for sure. Well, it's also like I will, right before we started writing this season of Big Mouth, because my version of what this show is, is like this weird constant process of outlining in the room, having a table read, rewriting the table read, it going away, recording the episode, getting a radio play of that, giving notes on that, rewriting then, it going away, coming back as an animatic of like a black and white blueprint of the episode, rewriting that, that getting sent away, getting a color five months later, watching that with a group of people, rewriting then, watching like a fucking cut on my phone, rewriting off, you know, versus then what the actual viewers' experiences of being at home, turning on Netflix and seeing an episode of the show. What's wrong with us? (laughs) Because <laughs> if I'm Isaac and I'm a 22-year-old fucking Gen Z or whatever the fuck, I'm yeah. like, why? Why are they working so hard just to do something minute? So he doesn't have to fucking edit your bullshit <laughs> podcast anymore. <laughs> so I he mean, can have his own podcast and talk to his pretentious <laughs> friends about his process. This is true. And I listen, the, the, the list goes on and on about all these things that— Took a picture. What's really, that a picture of? Oh, the kimchi stew. Yeah. That— we should be making it like I wrote this massive email this morning because I couldn't sleep. And like after I sent it, I'm like, fuck, most of this responsibility is on me. Sure. But sometimes you just have to write it out and be like, hey, we need you need to do this better. But also it's like this list is for you, you know, yeah. and, and I, I can't figure out like how to get this team operating at the highest standards. That's all I want to. Right. Yeah. And this is the shit that drives me insane. Not insane. It's like I have to get it done, you know. Yeah, but for you, it's this weird thing where you're like, "Well, okay, what the restaurant in Sydney requires is different from Nishi, which is different from Toronto, which is different from LA, which is different. They're all different restaurants, right? They're completely different organisms that require different versions of oversight and community. But again, it's like, why fight what your fucking nature is? Exactly. Well, that's exactly what I have to do if I want to like grow. You know what I mean? Sure. That's what makes this so fucking hard. But that's your nature too. But if I did this shit like years ago, or not even that long ago, I probably would have freaked out, thrown a dish in the fucking sink. Yeah. I would have like taken it off the menu and never, like, I just would have acted like a petulant child. Yes. And I still am in some ways, but I'm trying real fucking hard not to. (laughs) It's so hard. Do you think it's better for the organization? Besides yourself, do you think, do you find it to be a better... I have to because I know I've seen this. There are direct results of people becoming better because I'm learning how to communicate Correct. better. I had a nice thing. So I went to the restaurant a couple nights ago with these people, Alexi Pappas and Jeremy Teicher, who you met. At the Olympics. In the Olympics. we The three of us went and made a movie in the Olympic Games. And you Another were, project we didn't even talk about. Fuck. We'll get, yeah, that, that'll, that's still. We'll talk about after early, man. Yes. But you were there, you were doing a bunch of stuff for NBC. We were there doing this movie. We had one really 
awesome night where we all hang out and had a great time. And and they're huge fans of yours, so it was very cool for them to hang out with you. And for us, it was awesome. It was just a really special, amazing thing to be in Korea with you and be able to hang out and and go to a restaurant and just fucking relax, enjoy everything. And for Jeremy's 30th birthday, we came to your restaurant and uh, had an a tr- amazing meal. But they were talking to me about what it was like to work with me, <laughs> which was a crazy experience because they're, Jeremy was, it was his 30th birthday, he's 10 years younger than me. And it was, it was interesting. I don't know if this is weird that I'm speaking out of school about what he said to me and it's going to sound like a humble brag, but it was like, he's like, what I learned from watching you, which is something that it's been a long time for me to figure out, which is how do you tell people what you want and need and in doing so, empower them to go do it, mm. which is a very weird, tricky management thing. And one that I am constantly trying to figure out. How do you empower people? But while also not being a passive person who's like getting walked all over in your process, you know? Right. Is that a question to me? I mean, that that's what you? I'm constantly working on. But I think that's probably partly what you're struggling with. I think I have a pretty concrete answer for that, at least now. And it's always been the case, at least in my profession, you can't motivate someone in, in the culinary arts with money. Yes, you can, because everyone needs to make a living wage and get sure. by, or you want more than that. But it's grueling, very hard work. You need to sort of find a way to get them to realize that doing better at your job is actually aligned with like becoming a better person. Yeah. And integrity and all these things that are high-minded ideals are worthy. So like you can like, Mop your table and fucking hate like cleaning up, right? Like just cleaning a metal table. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. Everyone hates doing the stupid shit. I was a dishwasher. Right. But there comes a moment when you can figure out that if I do this right and I do it meaningfully and I pour myself into doing it the best possible way, it is a great reflection in everything else that I do in my life. Yes. And all of a sudden, just wiping a table isn't wiping a table. It's like, yeah, you know, and, and like- Doing the best work that you can in everything you're doing, particularly in a job that's so fucking hard, why be mediocre at it? Correct. That's so hard to teach. But when people get it, that's the fucking drug. Yeah. And you want other people to experience that. Yep. That's what I try to do. I honestly do. And I don't always communicate it that well. (laughs) It's more about communication for you. Those are the skills that you're I tell this to, I really tell this to, if you ask any of my sous chefs or sous chefs that are aspiring to be number two or number one in a restaurant, I never, ever, ever talk to them about, let's talk about techniques and all this and other cool shit. We almost always talk about deprogramming everything the fuck you know, because you're going to have to learn how to communicate. It doesn't matter if you have the best dish in the world and you're the most amazing chef. Mm -hmm. If you cannot get other people to execute it, it doesn't fucking matter. Right. And more importantly, if you force people against their will to execute it, eventually it's going to bite you in the ass. Yeah. And this is where I mean that it's got to be a little bit like parenting. I would imagine that you have to give this cook or server autonomy to willingly, on their own volition, yes. want to make it great. Great. And the only way you do that is by letting them fuck it up. You know what I mean? How yeah. fucking crazy that is? Uh-huh. That's so hard to let them just fuck up. And figure out how to then help. Communicate without... Freaking out, which is my default setting, yeah. to be like, hey, man, like— I'm the opposite. I have a similar question. I come at it from the opposite side of, like, I am very conflict-averse. So I am bad or historically bad at being like, you fucked that up, man. I'm fucking pissed. I'm like, I understand. You're having an issue at home. 
and I understand that it's now reflecting in your work or you're incapable of this because I'm scared of, of that direct conflict. I don't think there's any one way to have that conversation. The only goal that matters is if someone is able to understand that they made a mistake and they want to do better. Yes. It doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect, but that desire for self-improvement mm -hmm. and that sort of cognizant effort like is so powerful and there's many ways to get there but it only matters if they want to do it so you can be passive about it or you could be unfortunately sometimes more aggro like me but all that matters is like how they receive it yes you know and and different people need and require different versions of that yeah every single person every single millennial gen z gen y needs it customized to exactly how they want and I am trying my best to fucking do that. I it believe in you, David. So fucking hard. I believe in you, and I'm empowering you to go do it. Thank you. Thank you. But <laughs> I'm also sometimes taking notes from Kim Jong-un, and that is not a positive <laughs> fucking role model. <laughs> you got a wonderful cheering section yeah, here yeah. for you. The, oh, fuck. All right. All right, buddy. Thank you for listening to Dave Chang Show with Nick Kroll, the second part of this long conversation with my good friend. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating of five stars. I want to keep Bell happy. We'll be back next week with a special guest. Thanks again.